0: Well, we, uh, I don't think I have to tell anybody here, we live in a pretty divided time in our country. Anybody notice that? Yeah, you have to be living under a rock not to see it. You've got right, left, conservative, progressive, Republican, Democrat. Tensions are pretty high. Whether we're talking about racial tensions or ideological tensions, political tensions, tensions over vaccines or Uh, gender neutrality or critical race theory or the right to keep and bear arms, these and many other issues have America on the brink. You know, Anthony Fauci said just last week there are two Americas. He's right. Uh, There are two Americas, but not because some are willing to take an experimental injection and some are not, which was the context in which he made those remarks. But there are two Americas because there are some who believe that America was founded upon biblical Christian principles 245 years ago and some who do not believe this. But this morning I want us to focus not on what divides us but on what unites us. I want us to remember there's really only one United States of America, one nation under God as we just recited. I want to take us back to a time when frankly there were no Americans, as, as we think of the term, there were only people looking for a new start, people seeking religious freedom, people coming to the new world with hopes and dreams of something better than what they had in Europe or other parts of the world. I want to take us back to the beginning, the foundation of our great country, the United States of America. And even though, historically speaking, some of you may be aware that the phrase, one nation under God is a fairly recent addition to the American vernacular. I want us to think about that phrase and what that means, one nation under God. I want to review just a few facts about the foundations of this great country, facts that many of you will know, but maybe you haven't thought about them for a while. And then I'd like to just give you three important timeless biblical principles that withstand the test of time. Uh, that are very important for us to remember. So no matter where you look, the fingerprints of God are clearly all over the early days of America. Now, let me hasten to add, obviously, and I've talked about this elsewhere, those of you that have uh, followed our, our ministry. Obviously, there were a lot of things going on in the early days of this country. There were competing agendas. Not everybody was you know benevolent in in the beginnings of our country. but by and large, no matter where you looked, the fingerprints of God were quite clear. That's because back in that day, everybody lived and operated in a sort of a judeo-Christian world where the judeo-Christian ethic was pervasive in the culture. In the 1600s and 1700s, the biblical worldview, still prevailed, even among those who were not Christians. So it's not surprising, then, to review American history and see indications of this. For example, the Declaration of Independence declares all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Back in the day, people understood there was a Creator, and uh, by the way, we're going to be hosting next week, Saturday and Sunday, a creationism conference. And on your tables there, you should see a flyer, uh, one of two flyers. One is the program for today. The other is a little promotional flyer inviting you to come next week. It'll be indoors, Saturday night and Sunday morning, uh, where we can learn about how science proves there's a creator. Um, but uh, the Declaration of Independence talked about how we have unalienable rights, and the founding fathers clearly believed that our rights came from a creator. Dr. Jedediah Morse in 1799 reminded us, when the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government must fall with them. Now contrast that with the father of communism, Karl Marx, who said people without a heritage are easily persuaded. The first battlefield, he said is the rewriting of history. So I think it's helpful from time to time for us to go back in time and remember a little bit about the fingerprints of God that are on the founding of this great nation. Take the Washington Monument, for example. Its cornerstone was laid in 1848, and it contained a copy of the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bible. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other things going on with the architecture in Washington, D.C., but it just shows you that there was an element in that day that understood uh, the foundations of this country. Engraved references on the Washington Monument include Search the Scriptures and In God We Trust. The U.S. Capitol Building uh, has engraved references to God such as What Hath God Wrought and America, God Shed His Grace on Thee and In God We Trust. You don't hear about that in most history lectures today. You go to the Capitol Rotunda and you see paintings, for example, like this one of Pocahontas being baptized, or another one where the pilgrims were praying for God's mercies before they departed from the new world. Stained glass in the U.S. Capitol building's chapel depicts George Washington praying below the phrase, this nation under God. Above the house chamber's main door are marble silhouettes of history's 23 greatest lawmakers. And Moses is in the center. And only Moses of all 23 faces forward. What does that tell you? Look at the Supreme Court building. Above the eastern colonnade are history's major lawmakers again. And again, Moses is in the center holding a depiction of the Ten Commandments. Here's another uh, historical fact that you don't hear much in today's history classrooms. This, from 1892, when our own Supreme Court issued a nine-to-nothing unanimous decision in 1892, declaring that America is a Christian nation. Justice David Josiah Brewer wrote the majority opinion, which, by the way, cited 87 precedents. I'm not a big fan of the shift into law by precedent. I think it should be based on original intent. But nevertheless, such as it was then and now, 87 precedents. And here's what uh, Justice Brewer wrote as he wrote the majority opinion. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. These are not the sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterances. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation well uh, about 2,000 years uh, before Christ uh, the psalmist David asked a question if the foundations are destroyed what can the righteous do do You know, everyone here, I presume, knows that that I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can forgive my sin and give me eternal life. And this church, Plum Creek Chapel, uh, is a Christian church. We believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. But what makes this nation so great is that it does not force Christianity upon its citizens. In the 400 years since the pilgrims came ashore at Jamestown, people from all religions and creeds and traditions have flooded to this continent and we welcome them. We hope and pray that they will see the light of the glory of God in and through us and come to realize that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the only hope for their souls. We hope that people will believe in the good news about Jesus as a result of living in America, this great gospel-rich country. And yet, just as we cannot and should not, force Christianity upon anyone, we likewise must never allow others to force anti-Christian principles upon us. This is a Christian nation, and the fingerprints of God are all over it. God, our Creator, has blessed this nation from its earliest inception and has given us unprecedented freedom. Freedom to believe and freedom not to believe. I mentioned King David, it was in Psalm 11 when he wrote, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, from the context, it appears that David, a thousand years before Christ, was fleeing from an enemy of some kind. Enemies of the nation of Israel were not uncommon back then, just as they're not uncommon today. And we don't know the exact enemy on this occasion, but David expressed confidence that even though lawful authority might perish and chaos might ensue, The godly can trust in the Lord to punish the wicked and deliver the righteous. In this psalm, David sought advice from his counselors, and his counselors were urging King David to run and hide in some kind of physical stronghold. David refused to do so. He regarded God as much more secure than any man-made fortress. And as the psalm goes on, David explains that the wicked were attacking the upright and David in particular himself. Uh, He was the target of their deadly missiles. They may have been literally shooting at him with arrows or maybe it was a verbal attack. But either way, David's faint-hearted, weak counselors felt that the very foundations of their nation were in danger of being destroyed. Namely, the Mosaic Law and the institutions of Judaism. They felt distressed to the point of distraction. Well, many faint-hearted people have similarly uh, feared that the foundations of our country uh, might be destroyed. What can the righteous do, David asks. What can we do? For the answer to that question, I want to look at another verse from Psalm, another Psalm also from David, and that's Psalm 2. Also a thousand years before Christ. This is a fascinating psalm you may be aware that the psalms in the bible were hymns and they were organized into stanzas not unlike our traditional hymn books right so this psalm actually has 12 verses in our english translation and every three verses constitutes a stanza so there are actually four stanzas in this psalm i just want to look at the first two stanzas or the first six verses and the overall theme of this great psalm is that we should submit to the authority of the Son, whom God the Creator has ordained to rule over us all one day. In other words, it's about priorities. And who better to reflect on the importance of keeping God first in any nation than King David? King David ruled a theocracy foreshadowing the global governance of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he comes back someday. Until then, we live in a, here in America in a democratic republic where national sovereignty is crucial. But it's also God-ordained. If you read the Bible, we don't have time to make the case, but we are living in an era right now of national sovereignty ever since uh, the days of Noah. We're headed towards a global world, uh, but right now God has ordained national sovereignties. Here are three principles we need to keep in mind from David. First of all, we need to remember the futility of human government, the futility of human government. The message of David in Psalm 2 speaks to every American on both sides of the aisle who put their faith in a political person or party or platform. Such institutions have their place, but we must never forget that the end game is not about politics. David provides a cautionary reminder of the ultimate futility of human government to do anything whatsoever apart from the hand of God and his blessing. It reminds us that God is, now don't shoot me, but God is not a Republican and God is not a Democrat. In fact, God's not even an American. God is God, the creator of the universe. And although he is using human government in this era of nationalism ever since Noah came off the ark, We know that we're headed towards this one world system. So we need to keep things in perspective. Listen to what David said. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? David's perplexed. Why? Why, he asked. Why don't they know who is really in charge? He goes on. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. That's the Messiah, Christ. What are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds. Notice the capital T there, there, a reference to the triune God, the eternal trinity. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, the triune God, is in charge. Uh, when a nation rebels against God, then, and when world leaders conspire with each other against our Creator, it's futile. It's futile. Secondly, we notice the fearlessness of the Creator. Notice how God reacts as we shift into the second stanza, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. In, the, the Lord shall hold them in derision. It's the same thing David said in Psalm 37 when he said, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Sometimes I wish I had the mind of God, not that I was God, but I just wish I could see things from a divine, heavenly, eternal perspective. Because it's hard to remember that evildoers' day is coming, isn't it? We live in an inequitable world. As great as our country is, it's still made up of fallen people. There are a lot of injustices in this world. Sometimes guilty people get off scot-free. Sometimes be innocent are imprisoned it's not fair. But God reminds us that their day is coming. And remember, God lives in the eternal now. He lives outside of time, space, and matter. He spoke the world into existence. He created time, space, and matter. That's what the Bible, the very first verse of the Bible tells us. In the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. Time, space, and matter. God lives outside of that. So what to us it seems like a long time, and what to us we just yearn for justice, and we don't understand it all, and we, don't, we, we have so many why questions. To God, it's not surprising. God, I've often asked this question, has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God, right? God never looks down from heaven and says, boy, I didn't see that coming. God is in control. Isaiah the prophet reminds us that one day Christ will take the throne and the government will be upon His shoulder, and of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end, to order an establishment with judgment and justice from that time on even forevermore. And the book of Revelation describes His return when He says, As Christ comes back, He will strike the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. So we need to remember that human government is ultimately not the end-all be-all of life. Human government is ultimately futile, and our Creator is fearless, but we also need to look forward to that future reign of Christ. The last two verses in Psalm 2, the second stanza, read like this Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress, and distress them in deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's a powerful messianic prophecy right there in yellow. Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will come back. It's interesting in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, this is in the perfect tense. Not to get too granular, but the perfect tense describes an action of the verb as complete and certain. As though the action had already occurred, even though it hasn't occurred in time. In other words, Christ's reign is as good as done. He's already there. He hasn't fulfilled that yet he hasn't coming back and the governments clearly are not on his shoulder but he is coming back so there it is as we celebrate our incredible freedoms in this great country let's keep it in perspective let's remember the ultimate futility of human government and remember who's really in charge and pray that our leaders will take their cue from god's word and the principles contained therein Let's remember that we serve a fearless creator who's not in any way distressed by all of the enemies that are surrounding us, enemies of all that is good and right and moral. And let's remember that someday Christ is coming back. Let's remember the principle of Proverbs that righteousness exalts a nation and blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So what's the answer? Well, Throughout our great nation's history, there have been repeated calls to put God first. This is nothing profound or new that you're hearing me say today. As I close, listen to some of these quotes from previous presidents spanning the decades since the birth of our nation. Now, the presidents that I'm about to quote were not perfect. Some of them may not have even been Christians. But these quotes show you that they understood on some level in their day that there was an anchor, a true north, to which our country must tether itself if we're going to be able to abide the rising tide of evil and survive for another 245 years if the Lord tarries his coming. George Washington said it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said it is the duty of nations as well as men to recognize the truth announced in Holy Scripture and proven by all of history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Ulysses S. Grant said, Hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. Harry S. Truman said, The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the mount. If we don't have the proper fundamental moral background, we will end up with a totalitarian government. JFK said, The rights of men come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. And Ronald Reagan said, Without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. One nation under God. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Constitutional, Independent, Let us never forget, nor take for granted, the place of God in this great nation. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and so indebted that you, in your sovereignty, counted us worthy to be born into a country with so much freedom. Lord, we confess our failure to to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. We confess and seek your forgiveness for the times when we haven't used the great freedoms that we have in ways that honor and glorify you. Forgive us for that. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up men and women and young people, uh, citizens and leaders and uh, people in government uh, that would take another look, a fresh look at your word and your principles that are timeless and perfect and holy and just. And that we would uh, take our cue from those principles and seek to honor you until your son our savior comes back Lord, we do pray if there's one here today uh, listening to this either here in this tent or live streaming on uh, line, we pray that if there's one here that doesn't know your son as their personal savior that today would be the day of salvation today in simple childlike faith Uh, anyone that doesn't know you would place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins and is the only hope for eternal life. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we close this service.